Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So, it would appear I need to apologize to your, your Derbyshire lathe again. You keep saying unkind things about my Derbyshire. It wasn't unkind. I was speaking of myself, just an offhand comment, and now uh-huh. the poor thing is in pieces. Well, you made me feel bad about it, and it, it feel bad about it, and so that now the Derby is in pieces, and I'm looking at replacing the bearings and the the headstock because they are making a lot of noise, and I just I don't notice it because most of the time when I'm sitting here working by myself, I have my noise canceling headphones in, and I'm not listening to the symphonic sounds of the the shop. I don't like the sounds of machine shops, <laughs> which is not good considering how much time I spend in them. But I don't, so I don't really notice. But when we were sitting here working on Project Minuteboard the other day, and uh, my Apple Watch was sitting there complaining that it was 86 decibels beside the lathe, I'm like, huh, maybe we need to take a look at the bearings that are in this thing and, and replace them. And so I, I actually ended up talking to the folks at Derbyshire Lathes. They're still in existence. They're located in uh, Massachusetts. I'm probably going to get them to rebuild the headstock for me. And they kindly told me that this lathe is from 1954, which, um, considering it's nearly 70 years old at this point, it's actually quite impressive that it's still in the condition that it's in and it's still functioning as well as it does. I suspect I'm going to make far more unpleasant noises at the age of 70 than this thing (laughs) is making right now. It's still doing pretty well for itself, but I think it's time for this thing to have a proper rebuild and and get refurbished. Mm -hmm. It was in no way meant to be an unkind Uh comment. It was just a comment. (laughs) It was more me introspecting and, and realizing that I was not in, in any way intimidated while using this lathe because of its size, because I have uh-huh. actually worked on bigger lathes, yeah. and it's not affecting me the same way. And then it clicked for me that it was actually the noise I was making <laughs> as I was working with it. I just mentioned that to you off, uh-huh. offhand, just an offhand remark, and, and now the poor thing is in pieces. The thing got disassembled on the next day, and I've had the conversation over the last few days with the folks at Derbyshire, and then... The other thing that it started doing is because I'm not going to be using this lathe for a little bit until it gets rebuilt, I'm sitting there trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we do work on these tiny little pins in the meantime while we're waiting for this lathe to get rebuilt properly? So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, the Cromwell lathe could easily handle the work. I just don't have collets that go down that small. Uh, the smallest collet I have, they were all fractional imperial collets. And the smallest one I have is a sixteenth of an inch, which is gargantuan for a lot of this work. And I've considered actually getting some W20 collets from a Shoblin 102 and using them in the lathe because I've got a, a tap that I can make a drawbar for those collets. And they're actually very similar in size to the collets that came with the Cromwell. But, you know, it's going to be a couple thousand dollars in collets. So I'm saying, okay, well, how can I use the collets that I've already got? So I'm actually in the midst of making an adapter to be able to put the 10 millimeter collets that I use on the, the Derbyshire into the Cromwell lathe so that we'll be able to continue doing work on that and making those pins without needing to go off and find different collets for it. Very nice. That, that will come in very handy. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be really nice, actually. And that's the thing. The Derbyshire is a really nice lathe to work on. It's super stable, really comfortable to work, and uh, a lot of control over what it is that you're doing. So. It'll be nice to work on, and although, again, a step up in lathe size for you, so you're going to have to uh, get used to that, but it is uh, it is nice to work on. Yeah. No, I honestly don't think that will be an issue at all. I think <laughs> I, I truly think that all of my comments about your, your lathe being so much bigger than, than I'm accustomed to mm-hmm. working on were all rooted in that noise, and yeah. I, it was on a subconscious level. 
it didn't click for me until I was back in front of it again. And I was suddenly like, you know what? I think it's just <laughs> the noise that this thing is making yeah. that is making me uncomfortable working on it. Because, you know, a Shoblin 102 is a, a sizey lathe, and I have zero issues working on, on one of those. This Derbyshire is the same size as a Shoblin 70. Same swing over the spindle and bed as the uh, as a Shoblin 70, and similar lengthwise as well. And then the Cromwell is the same size as a Shoblin 102. And fortunately for you, the South Bend lathe that I have downstairs cannot run at anywhere near the spindle speeds we need to be able to do work on this stuff. So don't worry, we're not going to be then upgrading at some point to the 16-inch South Bend because that is a massive beast. Oh, maybe, maybe we'll try doing a, a case back on that guy. No, even then I think you'd find that the, the speeds wouldn't be high enough. It, yeah. it maxes out at 1,200 RPM, so it's uh, it's really not a very fast lathe. So what is its use case for you then? Making large pulling in parts okay. and stuff like that. So for instance, this adapter that I'm making right now to go into the Cromwell, I'm turning the first part of it. So I'm, I'm essentially making a collet from a Cromwell lathe. And so I'm turning the back part of a lathe where you've got the thread and you've got the taper angle on the back of it. And that's something that I'll turn initially on the South Bend because I can put large stock in it. Like I can put inch and a half steel stock through the headstock and I don't have to cut it off into weird sizes and stuff like that. So I do that initial machining on that machine and then once I'm happy with that, I can then part it off, stick it into the Cromwell and use the drawbar, tighten it down so that it's now sitting in the Cromwell. It's it's now going to be in the position that it's always going to be used in. So now I can then drill out and turn the taper for the 10 millimeter collet mm. so that it's completely concentric with the Cromwell lathe. And I should have very little run out between the, that adapter and the collets that we'll end up using in it. Very nice. I, I certainly don't think I'll ever forget moving either of those beasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite the job. Mm -hmm. it, it certainly was. And was made eminently easier once we actually got it here to the shop and you could use a forklift. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Using a forklift makes a, makes a huge difference, especially that, that South Bend lathe. It's, uh, it's somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 pounds. It's a sizable piece of cast iron. I really don't like disassembling it. You can pull the headstock off from the base, from the bed, from the the feet and all that, and, and you can start breaking it down into more reasonable chunks. But even having said that, some of those pieces are still north of 1,500 pounds. So it's not the kind of thing that you can really get a couple people to lift up and carry comfortably. You always need some sort of mechanical advantage to be able to move it around. So saying all that, have you serviced your South Bend? No, I still haven't. And I'm still debating whether I'm, what I'm going to do with it. It's, it does have limited use for me in the shop. I don't use it nearly as much as I did. I don't need it as much as I did. And I can get away with doing most of what I want to do using other machines. Or if I really needed something bigger, I can... I could go off and have somebody somebody else do, do the work for me, like Paul or somebody like that could do that work for me. So it's becoming less and less useful to me, and it is taking up more and more very precious space mm -hmm. just because it's got a, I think it's about eight and a half, nine feet long in total. It takes up a fair bit of shop space and a fair bit of floor space. So if I were to get a different machine or whatever, it's tempting to try and find a CNC lathe or whatever, something like the Tormox 15L slant bed lathe 
is a reasonable size machine that has a 5C collet in it and stuff like that. And I could do some of the larger stuff that I do on the South Bend in that machine. It's still nowhere near as large, but it also has some more capabilities that this South Bend just doesn't have. So it's tempting to, to maybe replace it with something like that, just because it would then still be able to do all the work that I really need to do with it. And if I need to do anything bigger, I can go off and shop that out to another job shop or something like that and, and do it there. Yeah, In terms of the floor space that you, you guys have, I am astonished <laughs> at, at how quickly it has filled up with various bits of tooling and, and equipment. And, and bits is an understatement, various pieces of machinery uh, and whatnot. It has certainly filled up very fast. You almost need to be, be building in a, a loft area or something about yeah. uh, certain areas of the shop space. And you just took delivery of a, another laser yes. as well, yeah. which is, is quite large. Yeah, we had a, a local member of the maker community donated a laser to us. And it, it's not a tiny little CO2 laser. It's a fairly large one. So yeah, you're right. It, we are constantly running out of space. And I, I think about, okay, what would I want in terms of machines to be able to continue forward? and maybe improve the kinds of work that I'm doing or make it easier to do some of the work that I'm doing so that I can focus on the stuff that's, that's more dedicated to me. I have to sit there now and think, okay, what do I remove from the shop floor before I add something else in? If I were to add something like like a Haas a compact mill or office mill or something like that, like a lot of watchmakers use those as case-making mills and things like that, I sit there and say, okay, well, if I'm going to add something like that, what do I remove? so that I have the space for it. And fortunately, a lot of those machines are not massive, so they're they're easy enough to fit in. But it is something that we've got to consider, which is ridiculous when you think about how much space we thought we had when we first moved in. Yeah, and in terms of utility for its footprint, the Haas Mini Mills are fantastic. Yeah. And I think your Derbyshire, once you've got it back up and running, will offer significant value mm-hmm. for the footprint it takes up compared mm-hmm. To, to something like the South Bend in, in yeah. terms of how much you're using it yeah. and then what you're actually doing with it. And that's just it. I, I use the Darby more than I use the South Bend by several orders of magnitude. It is a far more useful pool to me, which is why I'm happy to spend the money to have it rebuilt and I may actually get a new one as well. It's certainly a far more useful tool to me just for the size of work that I'm doing, the precision of work and you know that I'm doing things like that. So between the two, between the Cromwell and the, and the Darby, the, they fill 95% of the sort of the, the turning work that I need to do in terms of the size and the envelope that I can work in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when you need to start taking into consideration what do you do in-house, what do you mm-hmm. outsource. In that vein, you have a, a fantastic plasma cutter right here at mm-hmm. your disposal. You can do all sorts of neat stuff and indeed have done a number of useful things with already in terms of building up your own equipment and things here around the studio and at yeah. home. However, you haven't used it, as far as I know, in your actual watch projects no. yet. But a tool you don't yet have is a is a water jet cutter, and, and you have recently outsourced some water jet cutting work for your forthcoming watch. There are a few technologies out there which uh, would be handy to, to add to the shop, and I don't know that I'm ever going to get a water jet. Uh, wire EDM would probably be more useful to me, and I would probably want to add something. If I got a reasonable deal on a wire EDM, I would add that to the shop without even thinking about it, because it really is uh, a powerful tool that would give me a lot more control than I have and allow me to do things that I just can't do any other way. A water jet is certainly useful. I, I know we've got friends that have water jet machines, and they're using them constantly. They're 
You can get some nice desktop-sized water jets these days that are actually quite good. I know people talk about the the Wazer, which is okay, but it's more like a high-end hobbyist kind of machine as opposed to a real professional machine. But there are some professional water jets that are in the desktop size, which are quite nice. From speaking to people who use them, they're incredibly handy. Fortunately, when uh, Rich was looking for some water jet cutting services for some Lexan that he needed for a project, he found out that Carleton University here in town actually has a job shop which um, takes in outside work in order to help pay for the, the shop. And they happen to have a large water jet uh, machine there. And by large, I mean, I th- think they can do, pretty sure they can do like a full 8 by 4 sheet if I really wanted to. It's a sizable thing. And I decided to talk to them about getting some parts blanked out for the watch cases that I'm doing. One of the problems that I've I've had when I've been thinking about how I want to manufacture these things is how do I cut down on the amount of time that I'm spending doing the sort of the mundane parts of the job, which are not really adding any benefit to myself, to the client, to the quality of work that I'm doing. And one of them is how do you blank out these parts from a plate of stainless steel? So you have a three millimeter thick plate of stainless steel and you have to somehow get a ring out of that, which will then eventually be turned into part of a, a watch case. And there are different ways that you can go about doing it. You can mill it out, but then you're you're spending a lot of time machining away material that you're never going to use and that you're you're just generating chips. And spending um, money on cutters. And as well. absolutely spending money on cutters and coolant and all of the nightmare that comes with that. And that's that's not ideal. If I had a wire EDM, then I'm you know, I would just wire EDM them maybe. But again, that's not the fastest way of doing it either. It's that's a, a fairly slow process and you still have a consumable there, that wire that you're putting through it is a consumable. I was looking at ways of doing it. I'd looked at maybe using an annular cutter, and that can work to some degree, but it's still not ideal. From chatting with friends who have water jets, I thought, you know, maybe I'll I'll try these guys at Carlton U and see how they work out. And they were incredibly reasonable. They got it done really fast. I brought them some material that I already had. And, you know, a couple days later, they called me up and said, come pick it up. And the parts that I got out of it were really nice. They're close tolerance to what I need, so I don't have a lot of extra material to turn away. But now I've got something consistent, which I can build jigs off of. So I can build a particular collet for my lathe so that I can hold the raw part on there. And I can now easily turn those parts into something that's usable as a case. So I'm really happy about that. And I'm I'm happy that I can get that done quickly. And they're happy to do much larger sheets than I'm ever going to need. So again, I can send them a bunch of stainless steel they can send me back that sheet of stainless steel with a bunch of parts cut out of it, have it work out really well for me and, and really save me a huge amount of time, which I don't have to spend doing something mundane like just getting the basic stock prepped for the, the watch. Mm-hmm. It looks certainly very promising. And it's nice that you've got uh, these, these fantastic universities so close <laughs> and, and at your disposal. Yeah. You've got Ottawa U for the, the wire EDM work yep. and, and Carleton U. For, for all your water jet needs. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is nice. And it, uh, unfortunately, Ottawa is not a manufacturing town. It's never been a town where there has been very much in the way of manufacturing. There has been a lot of R&D work that's been done here between some of the high-tech companies that were here, as well as something like National Research Council. There's some certainly some R&D and sort of stuff going on there. And in fact, a number of the manual machines that I have 
in the shop, including my Cromwell, including my Hardinge Mill. Those began their life at NRC. Our Asier F5 that we picked up this year, that became, began life at NRC. There's been some of that, but not a huge amount of it. And what it's meant is that there really are not a lot of the job shops that help support the normal industries that a lot of towns have. And because of that, there, there just aren't a lot of places that I can go for that stuff. It's really nice to see that I can get that done here and I can get that kind of work done quickly. They're, again, very reasonably priced, very fast. It was, uh, you know, great people to deal with. And it is great having the NRC here in town for things like that, like picking mm-hmm. up these surplus machines and, and supplies. And uh, coincidentally enough, just a couple months before the beginning of the pandemic, actually, I got a call from the NRC at work. The fellow who called me was appalled by, by the price of watch lubricants, and he needed <laughs> just a, a little tiny amount for a, a project that, that he was, was working on and, and researching and developing. And he was just like, can I just come and, and get like a mill of it from you? <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure thing. Sure, that'll this be $500. <laughs> <laughs> for the good of our nation, Hell yeah. I, it was gratis. I, I just yeah. gave it to him. Ten mills is like a lifetime supply for, for watchmakers. But it also requires a mortgage to buy. Like it's, <laughs> it's for any of you out there. I mean, there, if you want to get a liter of it, yes. So for any of you out there who are not watchmakers, when you, you, know, you think, okay, what are the expenses that I'm going to have? Okay, I'm going to have to buy some watch movements to practice on. I'm going to have to maybe buy some watches to practice on. I'm going to have to buy some pooling. And you're thinking, okay, yeah, those are all good. And then all of those pale in comparison to buying a half a dozen different lubricants that you need for lubricating watches. And you're sitting there looking, I could, I could go on a very nice holiday somewhere for the price of these lubricants. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not as if these lubricants last forever. They do eventually break down. And as you said, a lot of the bottle sizes they sell them in it's a quote unquote a lifetime supply, but certainly for somebody like me, I'm not servicing enough watches in a year to actually go through them before the lubricant breaks down and it's past its best buy date. Yeah, I don't know how much stock to put in those best buy dates yeah. from Mobius. Maybe it, a little self serving. A, a little, just a little. They do certainly break down over time, and, and that's why you you want to make sure that your watch is being yeah. serviced somewhat regularly, particularly with the older stuff that was either purely natural or a mix of natural and synthetic lubricants. But the purely synthetic stuff in my, albeit not extensive, but limited testing, really does not break down as long well, as it's kept in, in a good environment. Yeah. Yeah. So keep it away from ultraviolet light, keep it away from heat. So if you store it in a fridge in a, a black box, and it should last for significantly longer than the label says that said watch manufacturers will will do their tours and come by your shop and they want to see that none of your lubricants are expired and all that makes sense and it's but at the same time for for somebody like me i'm talking about making up watches a year it's going to take me a very very long time to go through all of the lubricant that i have in servicing 50 watches a year and it wasn't inconsequential buying buying those lubricants if you're getting into watchmaking make sure that you that you you sit down before you start looking up the price of, uh, of lubricants. <laughs> escapement lubricants or the surface treatments for escapements are, are yeah. where things really get pricey and where you're using a ridiculously small amount of, yeah. of lubricant relative to the rest of the watch where you're already using a... Uh, really tiny amounts. Really tiny amounts of yeah. lubricant, precisely. You really don't use a whole lot of lubricant in a watch. And uh, it was in a fashion magazine of all places where I picked up this particular fact, I can't recall what magazine it was precisely, but if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But it was an official interview 
with Rolex. Mm. And one of the interesting factoids from that was the all of Rolex's manufacturing, so nigh on close to a million mm-hmm. watches per year. And their annual consumption of watch lubricants was only 10 liters. Yeah. So that's like for an entire company. Yeah, that's for nearly a million watches, and they're only using 10 liters of, of lubricant. lubricant. Yeah. A fun little fact in line with that as as well. I haven't run the numbers on this myself. I should actually pull it up because it's probably increased since then. Ten years ago, Alex Stoke, a watch journalist, tweeted out that he learned while doing a watchmaking class at IWC that a single liter of escapement oil, so whether it was like my Mobius 941 or 9415, yeah. would cost you 25,000 pounds or something yeah. in that range. It might have been 24,000 yeah. pounds. And yeah, that, that was 10 years ago. So it is quite possibly maybe next to, to heavy water the most expensive liquid <laughs> on, on the Earth. planet yeah maybe and then well and then you get the the epilom which is a, a treatment for preventing the oil from actually moving around on parts in a watch and that's even more expensive than the the lubricants that you find and it evaporates very quickly so if you accidentally leave your container open and you go have lunch you've just gone off and evaporated hundred and fifty two hundred dollars or whatever worth of epilom while you're eating lunch so these lubricants and everything are just it's crazy interestingly enough the base components of epilom or at least the original epilom there's different surface treatments now that are, are not as toxic or more environmentally friendly that that are being promoted and coming to the fore within the market but your original epilom from like the 1930s 1940s that was being promoted in watchmaking it was just a stearic acid mm. in a, a solution that evaporates off very quickly. And I'm off on a zillion different tangents here. Word of caution. I don't know if we've mentioned this here on the, the show before, but the, the chemical reaction that, that is taking place there as it is depositing the surface treatment on the, the palate jewel is an endothermic reaction. Mm. So the surface of the stones actually is getting very cold very quickly. Okay. This is why a lot of manufacturers with the older epiloms recommended drying it under a current of warm air. Okay. And the purpose of this was to prevent any of that surface treatment that had gotten onto to any of the, the steel from having any moisture in the air condensing on that and then causing rust issues for you down the road. And I, I have actually run into this on a number hmm. of pieces, some of them direct from a manufacturer. I won't name names, but I'll, I'll link to something in the show notes, and you can <laughs> go down the, the, the rabbit trail there. And the, there are cases where a watch has actually been brought to a stop because of the corrosion that is built up wow. on, on the pallet fork, where the epilomization process wasn't dried rapidly enough, yeah. and enough moisture from, from the environment got in there and started that corrosive process and, and have having that corrosion build up. But where I was initially meaning to, to go with this, this <laughs> tangent about stearic acid, there was this really fascinating piece of research that, that I came across a, a couple of months ago about improving cutting performance on, on softer materials mm. like brass yeah. and German silver and these materials that, that we use in watchmaking. And, and it turns out having a, a very thin layer of media put onto a surface, like a, a soft ductile metal when you're cutting it, promotes breakage in the swarf and gives you a much cleaner cutting mm. surface. And... They experiment with a, a number of different things in terms of stuff like a Sharpie marker stroke, a dichem fluid, and then one of the 
the key ones for them what was stearic acid. Hmm. So it's that exact same surface treatment that we're using on these pallet stones. If you put that over the surface uh, of your soft ductile material that you're, you're cutting into or turning on a lathe or with a mill, what have you, right. um, you get a much cleaner, much better surface finish in the end. So perhaps when those those final stages, I, I wouldn't go putting Sharpie on every single cut stroke <laughs> no, 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 or dipping that, every yeah. single one in yeah. your Epilom solution. But if you want to get a nice clean finish on, on those final strokes, or at least a, a cleaner, cleaner machine finish, finish than you would get putting a bit of this surface treatment on, or you know, even something as simple as dichem fluid. I, I will, yeah, I would probably suggest that your Sharpie or your dichem is going to be significantly less expensive <laughs> for your machining than than your Epilom is going to be. I think you should save that probably for your, your watch parts. Touche. Touche. <laughs> It'd certainly be a lot less expensive. So now that I have thoroughly derailed us with lubricants yeah. and surface treatments, let's look back to uh, your case manufacturing yeah. processes. So as not to keep all of your eggs in one basket, you are not relying solely on, on outsourcing part of this to water jet cutting, but you actually tried a, another process that we touched on here on the show a couple months back. One of the problems that I've been having is something like a, a turned part, something like the, the center ring or the bezel or whatever from a, a watch case or maybe the case back. Those, those are really easy to turn, so those, are, those aren't a big deal. But one of the problems that I run into is with something like, let's say, the lugs or the, the buckles. I'm, I'm making my cases in several different parts and uh, then soldering them together. It's not an integrated lug in the sense of a single piece case. And so I've been looking for different ways of making those parts. One of them is to blank them out on the water jet and then to machine the part afterwards to the final shape. And there's certainly some advantages to that. One of the biggest advantages that you end up with is you're starting from milled plate stock. So the metal is very dense and very homogenous and it works really well. Uh, Beautiful material to work with and, and the surface finish that you get and the surface finish that you can get from polishing is actually quite nice. But there are still limitations to it. And one of them is the fact that I then have to machine these parts afterwards. And my milling setup is not ideally suited for that kind of work right now. But having said that, there are some other options out there. One of the things we've talked about in the past is casting stainless steel. Teresa Frey and the folks at TechForm Casting, they do various metals for both the jewelry industry as well as the aerospace industry. And in particular, they cast 316L stainless steel. So I decided to get in touch with them and see what they could do about casting some lugs and some buckles for me as a test so that I could see, okay, is this actually a worthwhile process? Because anytime you're casting, you're going to end up with some porosity in the metal and that it may not be something that you necessarily notice visually when you're looking at it. However, you will absolutely notice it in the quality of the polish. And trying to get a high quality, high surface finish on that part is going to be very difficult. And you may also end up with strength problems from it. You're, you could end up with enough porosity that the part could actually break under stress from that, those casting flaws, basically. So I wanted to see what would come out of their casting process. Because on top of casting... They also use this HIP process, this high isostatic pressing process, which essentially takes the cast parts, heats them up again, and then introduces incredibly high pressures, which 
forces out the porosity and increases the density of the parts afterwards. I was able to get them to cast two sets of lugs and two sets of buckles for me. And I have to say, I am super impressed with the quality of metal that's come out of this thing. I think looking at these parts after having cleaned them up a little bit, because they just sandblast them from or b-blast them after they've been cast. So taking off that, that top surface and getting down to a clean surface afterwards, I cannot find any sense of porosity. They're super strong. I tried bending two of them. There's some sort of long prongs on two of the parts that I cast, trying to bend those by hand. I'm not sure that I could actually bend them by hand and, and break them. They are definitely strong enough and dense enough for what it is that I'm doing with them. So I was super impressed with the quality of work that I got out of those castings. Yeah, I was likewise impressed when I handled them. Do you happen to know from the presentations, Teresa's given what sort of impact the hot isostatic pressing has on, on the hardness level of the 316L? Uh, I don't know with the 316L. I'd have to ask her, uh, see if they've done any testing on it. All of the papers that they've delivered about this have all been in relation to their platinum casting because the platinum has a lot of casting problems mm -hmm. and you really do need to be careful about how you're casting it. And this is a way of, of dramatically increasing the density of the platinum castings. That's primarily what her papers have been on. I don't know if they've ever studied how much denser the or harder the stainless steel is getting from it, but certainly it is well within the realm of what I would be happy with working. The, obviously, it's a much more expensive process because I have to 3D print the models, ship the models off to them. They then go about casting them, throw them through their HIP process, and then ship them back to me. So it's a longer process. It's a month plus to, to get all that happening. And then they, the cost per lug or the cost per buckle is significantly higher than if I get them water jet cut as a blank here and then machine them myself. So there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Obviously, there's a lot less work for me to do because I get a part that's the right shape. And now all I have to do is do a little bit of cleanup on it on the on a belt sander to clean up the, the bead blast surface, polish it, get ready for the watch, and then solder it in place and do all the stuff that I would have to do anyways, regardless of which process I use for forming it. But these parts are very close to being ready to use, and I don't have to do a lot of work on them. And it is with good reason that you didn't do the, the case band or the, the case mm -hmm. back and whatnot, because those are going to require far different tolerances than just the lugs on their own wood. Yeah. And for anyone who hasn't been listening along from the get-go, they, they might be curious as to how or why you would have printed just the lugs they may not have I've caught that eight bridge episode where we chatted a bit about the different ways that, that you can integrate the lugs into a, a watch case that you're making from scratch. I don't remember where we found it. Maybe it was you that sent me sent it to me and there was a, a quick little video somebody was showing, one of the manufacturers was showing how they create their lugs and keep them all lined up in such a way that they can easily solder them to the center band of the case and keep everything happy and keep it all square and, and whatnot because Whenever you're dealing with uh, separate lugs from the original case body, you have challenges with things being out of alignment. I know that people like Roger Smith, when he's making his cases, he actually oversizes his lugs quite a bit and then solders them into place and then they actually finish them uh, on the center band of the case. And so they turn them to shape and everything like that. 
And in my case, the shape of these lugs can't be turned after they're in the case form, the, just because of the way that the geometry that I've got on these. I liked the idea of this H-bridge where essentially you manufacture the lugs, all four lugs together as one part. So they're always in relation to each other in the correct spot. You don't have to worry about them shifting as you're soldering them in place. There's no fiddling with them afterwards to get them in the right spot and, and to get them working properly. And then all you need to do is machine a slot in your case for this H-bridge, drop it in, solder it in place. The lugs are exactly where they need to be. Everything's good and, and everything's happy. There, there are a lot of advantages to the way this is being done. I think you could probably get away with doing it in a slightly different way than I am, maybe two C-bridges instead of an H-bridge. Uh, and I may experiment with doing a little bit of that at some point, but they're, they're certainly as nice. And when it comes to machining them myself, if I'm going to machine them out of these parts that I've had water jet cut, then holding them on to fixtures while I'm machining them on the mill, it, it becomes significantly easier. Now I'm not trying to hold four fiddly little parts and machining them to the correct space and the correct shape and everything like that. Now I'm holding a much larger part, a larger part of which is, is going to be discarded. However, it, it holds everything together and I can use it for referencing where things go on the fixture and stuff like that. And it makes it easy for me to work with. And it's just a much nicer part to work with instead of trying to manufacture tiny little parts individually like that and then get them soldered in the right place and get them the right distance from everything. It's just, it's, it's frustrating to do. Oh, absolutely. It certainly is fiddly work trying to, to do four individual lugs. Mm -hmm. The very first time I ever tried to craft a, a case, uh, I did a watch case out of silver. And yeah, I, I did all the lugs separately and mm. I, I made little through holes and at least threaded them through the, the case band before soldering them. But it was still a challenge to get everything to stay in place. And when you're heating things up, the metals yeah. expand and, and your solder and yeah. your flux and all, everything's bubbling and moving and flowing and it is really challenging to mm. get everything to stay fixed. So taking an, uh, an approach like this really helps blend it with solidarity and you know that where you're putting them in is where they're going to stay, particularly when they are as strong uh, as these components are that you've gotten back from TechForm. Yeah. And uh, the episode that we, we first chatted about this on was way back in episode 15. Hmm. And uh, it was uh, an article on SJX about the method that Langenzona uses for, for the manufacturing of their precious metal. That doesn't surprise me at all. And it, and it seems kind of wasteful, especially when you think about it from a precious metals point of view, because you need to cast a whole lot of extra metal that you're then going to be cutting away. But the nice thing about precious metals is that they are very easily recycled. If it's something like an 18 karat gold, I can turn that part, that, that H bit that's in there, the support, once everything's been soldered into place, I can cut it out and then turn back the inside of the case so that everything's flush and you would never even know that, you know, those lugs have been soldered in using this method. And then you've got this big chunk of, of gold sitting there that was the support that's no longer needed. You can throw that back into your casting grain and you can include that as part of the next casting process. And so now you've recycled that bit that you didn't need before. With the stainless steel, I'm not going to be able to do that. I don't have a way of reasonably recycling that, that stainless. But it's also significantly less expensive, obviously, than, you know, 18 karat gold or platinum or something like that would be. But it's really nice. I've made a couple of cases now out of silver using this method. And it was it's funny. Everybody said, oh, soldering the lugs, it's always tough. You know, you're going to have problems with that. Make sure you're careful about that. 
and it was almost too easy when I did it like this. I didn't struggle at all with it, and it was really nice. And the end result is that you see these lugs, and they just look like they're part of the case, and they're perfect, which is great. That's exactly what I want. I want it easy, and I want the quality to be as high as possible. Using this process enables you to introduce forms to the lugs that would be significantly more challenging to try and machine Mm -hmm. out of a case shape. You're going from this perfectly round surface and you want to jet out and have an undercut on these lugs that is not going to be an easy thing to to machine even on uh, a really high-end multi-axis mill. Yeah, and that's the thing. If you want to machine these on on a five-axis mill or something, you can, but all of a sudden you're now talking about needing hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty thousand dollar machine just to manufacture these particular parts, whereas this can be done for significantly less money on a much simpler machine. And if you start getting into a more complex teardrop shape that has a lot of complex curves on it, all of a sudden you're you know trying to get everything lined up is really tough because you don't have good reference surfaces to mm-hmm. work to. And it it would be very easy to get that all out of alignment. I think that this is a method I'm going to use for manufacturing lugs for a very long time unless I decide to do a single piece case or something like that where the lugs are being machined out of the same piece of metal as the rest of the body. At that point, I'm probably using other methods for doing it. And there are ways of of easily cutting out those lugs using specially shaped cutters. We've talked about that before. But again, that's a specialized tool that you then have to have for each individual case size that you want to do. And it leads to other challenges and other problems. Whereas with this, I can make any size case I want quite easily. I just have to change the size of the the lugs that I'm using. And I can print or machine those separately. And it's super easy for me to do. Mm-hmm. Teardrop lugs certainly have their challenges. <laughs> that is uh, precisely what I, w- I was going for with that that very first case that, that yeah. I tried to make out of, of silver. And the case is more or less finished, but I have not bothered making a crown for it because I was disappointed in the, in the way that it it turned out. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the other issues I encountered was something you touched on earlier with the casting. I was shooting for, for teardrops. So I, when I melted down the silver, literally poured out just some little teardrops and I, I cut those in half <laughs> okay. as my lugs. And I did a number of them to try and, and match things up the same way you would match up pearls for the size and, and the shape uh, and whatnot. But when I cut into them, I realized that, that there was no way I was not going to have porosity in there. And uh, that that was another big issue that I mm-hmm. encountered. And I was able to, to touch up some of it with a laser a, a few years later. But I was just never satisfied with, with that particular project. And yeah, <laughs> there are much better ways to, to go about these things. And reflecting back on, on when we first talked about this, when I first showed you this particular style that Lang was doing, mm-hmm. your 3D printing setup has <laughs> evolved significantly yeah. from the time that you, you did these first proof of concepts. Yeah, I did those first proof of concepts, uh, as you say, like nearly four years ago at this point. And I was printing on a much lower quality printer with lower quality resins than I have now. And I was casting them myself out of silver. But even then, they turned out really great. The stuff that I'm doing now, I could certainly do much nicer, cleaner prints than I was doing then. I'm very happy with it. You do end up with a little bit of shrinkage from it. That's something you have to live with. Both the shrinkage in the resin itself after you've printed it as well as a little bit of shrinkage in the uh, casting process. So one of the things I've done is I've intentionally undersized the distance between the lugs. So if it's, let's say I need a 20 millimeter lug spacing, I've got it down to, let's say, 19 millimeters. And that gives me a half millimeter on either side that's 
impinging on where that spring bar and the strap is going to be. And that's fine because what I then do is I just run an end mill down the inside and that allows me to perfectly size the lugs so that they're in exact distance from each other and I don't have to worry about guessing how much shrinkage is there going to be, is there going to be a problem with it afterwards. I just run it down there and say, okay, this is going to be exactly 20 millimeters across and I don't have any problems with it after that. There are some challenges whenever you're casting. Shrinkage is a huge one. Porosity is a huge one. But you can get around some of these if you think ahead and, and figure out how to sort of resolve them later on. And these are all factors that you have to absolutely be thinking about as mm -hmm. you're going about producing something. Yeah. And one of the nice things, too, about the H-bridge is that you can go in quite a ways. Yeah. You're not going to see where that end mill finished off by, by the time you're done with the case and you oh, everything no. soldered in there no. and, and cut off the, the center portion of that. It gives you plenty of room to work mm -hmm. and it gives you a, a surprising amount of structure and stability mm -hmm. in how those lugs are, are all laid out. How does the finished, uh, I shouldn't say finished, how does the in-process form uh, of those lugs compare between the the steel, which neither of us could really bend those lugs, to mm -hmm. the cast silver that you worked with? The silver ones are strong, but they're nowhere near as strong as that. You know, you're talking about arms that are on it that are two and a half millimeters thick. So that is pretty strong, even in silver, that's going to, to have quite a bit of strength to it. I would be shocked if I could bend the lugs on my silver cases. I think that, you know, I think I'd have a tough time, mostly because the lugs are not very long. You don't have much leverage on the, the lugs just because of how short they are. And I think that I would have a tough time by hand trying to, to crush them. And I think it would be very difficult even if you were, you know, to accidentally hit the watch on, a say, a, a door frame or something as you were walking by or you caught it on a car door as you were getting out of it or something like that. I think it would be difficult to bend those lugs enough that they would actually snap or that they would deform. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because the, the lug is actually going through the case and it's being soldered all the way through the case. It's not just a surface solder that's on the outside of that band, right? One of the ways that a lot of people do this and the way that you were doing it is that you're soldering that lug onto the outside of a piece of metal. And while that's going to be strong, and it won't be nearly as strong as having it cut through that band and having all the increased surface area of that solder joint through the entire band of the case. And that makes a big difference in terms of what it's eventually going to, to be. I know that Roger does that. He Even though he's manufacturing his lugs individually, he is actually cutting all the way through the band of the case to solder those lugs in place. And that gives him a lot of extra strength as well. Lugs, generally speaking, are short enough that you don't have a lot of leverage. Unless you have paper thin lugs, that they shouldn't really bend in normal day-to-day -day use. I've seen some pretty banged up cases and, and things that have been through motorcycle accidents. So even on full out stainless steel, whether it's 316 or 904, it can be bent if enough force is applied. Anyone who says that they can't be bent, give it to me. I've, I've got tools that will help, that, <laughs> help with that. <laughs> yeah, I was curious more so how the, the strength of the silver compares just for, for comparison purposes between that and then the steel products you've gotten? They were still very strong. And if I needed them to be stronger, then I could always thicken up those arms as well. That's been really good. And again, it's remarkable just how good these processes work once you try them out and get them working. Because when I saw that, you know, I thought, okay, this is a really great idea. But I wasn't 100% convinced because I hadn't seen a lot of other people doing it. Lango was the only company that I'd seen doing something like this. 
and there may be other people, they just don't share it. But once I tried it, I said, this is going forward the only way that I'm going to do this. There's no good reason not to use this process for, for actually make, making these lugs. Mm-hmm. One of the probably most, most common methods is just to have it integral to the, the case middle right. in, in the machining process. And if you're manufacturing close to a million watches a year, or you know even half of that number of watches a year, you'll find that that's actually very, a very good way of doing it. This is actually not, the way I'm going about it, is not a great way to manufacture watch cases if you are making a million watches a year. It's a lot more fiddly, right? Because you have more components that you have to manufacture, and then you have to solder them, and then you have to clean them up, and then you have to cut away the inside support material. There's a lot of extra processes that are involved. If you've, But if you've got a machine, let's say a, a lathe with live tooling on it, or a, a five-axis CNC mill or whatever that's machining these things, and you've got specialized cutters which can go in there and cut the exact distance between your lugs, cut that nice curve in the watch case. All of that stuff is being taken care of by specialized cutters on a decent CNC machine. Then there's no good reason to could go about doing it the way that I'm doing it. So anytime you see a solid case like that, and I'm thinking, you know, let's say my own watch is something like my Hamilton khaki that I have. That is a solid case a solid single piece case except for the case back and that was obviously manufactured in one piece like that and that makes total sense for a watch that they're probably producing by the tens of thousands and it will be much easier for them to produce that way you could never produce the the number of watches that they're doing in the way that I'm doing it it just wouldn't make any sense yeah if you've got the money as we've alluded to in, in previous episodes you could have a a special piece of carbide cut just to get yeah. that perfect form of your, of your lugs just straight off the mill. And uh, just a single pass, probably multiple passes. But You need it, more than one pass. Yeah. But that finishing pass going through there, like it, it has all that form built right into it. Sure. You're not having to actually move a five-axis machine around and, and get into all those little corners. You've got a, a single tool mm-hmm. that is going to be able to just flow right through that and, and get you that exact curvature. And, and all the angles just so. And, you know, if I was interested in building that particular type of case and that that style of case, then there certainly are people out there who will make those end mills for me. And for four or $500 US, I could have a custom end mill made which would handle doing that. And the machines that I have downstairs, I could easily use those. I could put that on my hardened mill, make a fixture to hold the piece of metal for the case on it, and very easily machine out those lugs. No problem. It would certainly do that. And in some ways, it might be the better the better option for me. But the problem there is that every time you want to do a different size case, for instance, doing a 42 mil case and a 39 mil case, let's say I decide that I want to do a 36 mil case. Now I have a third of these $400 cutters that I need to, to buy. And of course, those cutters going through 316 stainless, they are going to break down. Mm-hmm. They're not going to last forever. These are disposable items. They're not They're not a long-term tool that you can rely on for years. Who knows how many watt cases they're going to need to be replaced every time. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 100. I don't know. But every X number of cases, you're going to have to replace that cutter. And so then you're going to have to go off and get another one made and the delays that are involved in that and everything else. Or you accidentally drop that cutter on the floor and now all of a sudden you've just chipped your... $400 carbide cutter. It's all possible, but it's it just it's more costly upfront to get the tooling to do it. 
also it kind of relies on the, on the particular shape that you want to use. I like what I'm doing with the cases that I'm doing right now, and maybe that'll change somewhere in the future, but it, certainly it, uh, it works well. And on that point, this process is one that caters very well to mass-produced products, mm-hmm. mass-produced watches and mastige items, which is not the sort of look that, that you're going for. You're going for something much more distinctive yes. and handcrafted, mm-hmm. and that's something that this process can deliver for you yeah. and that you can iterate on and, and change on a whim yes. using the, the tools and, and processes at hand. Now, in that vein, uh, your 3D printers have changed a lot, but your resins at your disposal have changed quite a bit over time as well. I know back when you were originally printing these lugs, you were using some stuff from Maker Juice. Now you've moved on to, to using equipment from Formlabs. Mm. But I know you've been having some struggles with, with your castable I'm, resins. I am very unhappy with Formlabs right now. They've they developed this new castable resin. And, and when we say castable resin, it's a poor term to, re, you know, how you're referring to it. It, it. You're not actually casting the resin. You're printing it and you're forming it using UV light to cure the resin. And then you can burn out this resin as part of a, a casting process. So whenever you hear people saying castable resin, it, that's what they're talking about. It's really being, it's a resin that can be used in the casting process. And one of the problems with a lot of the castable resins that are out there for 3D printers is that their burnout process is miserable. They require a huge amount of oxygen because you actually have to ignite the material and then burn it out. And so you need the oxygen in the in the, the kiln in order to facilitate burning out that that resin properly. And as you're doing that, the resin will often expand a little bit as well as it's burning. So you then have some problems from that. And sometimes your your investment plaster will actually crack under the force of the resin expanding. So there's a lot of challenges with that. And so Formlabs decided to develop a new resin specifically for those of us doing lost wax casting. And it has a much higher wax content in it than the other resin that they had developed. The idea behind this is that the wax will melt at a lower temperature. And so a larger volume of this resin will actually just melt out under normal burnout procedures and won't expand as much. And then the non-wax components of this resin, there will be a smaller volume of it, which means you need less oxygen for them to burn. And as they burn and expand, it's fine because the wax has already melted around it. The thing that they fail to tell you when they're when you're talking about that is just how much uh, shrinkage you get with it. I had more than 10% shrinkage in the parts after I'd printed them. And this is before I've even gotten to the casting process where you often end up with, with a shrinkage from that as well. And I was really unhappy because I've never made a single piece of jewelry that could withstand a 10% shrinkage in any dimension. Sometimes you've got a a decorative surface or whatever, and if it's not the exact dimension that you made it, it's not the end of the world. But here you're talking about all three dimensions, it's shrinking by at least 10%. That's a lot of shrinkage. And all of a sudden, things like pen barrels are nowhere near the size that they need to be. The caps that you're that you were dealing with are nowhere near the size they need to be. In the case of lugs, all of a sudden now your lugs are nowhere near the size that they need to be. And that's hugely problematic. So I was really unhappy with that. This is the new blue castable 40, I think is the, the name that they've got for it. If you're out there and you're thinking about using a Formlabs printer and you're thinking about using this stuff, I would be very cautious about using this castable 40 resin. It is not 
for most processes, I would say. The purple castable resin that they have that they've had for a number of years now is much better and certainly easier to work with. The cast, the burnout process is a little bit worse, which is annoying, but at least it, it's an easier wax to work with and it doesn't shrink as much in the post-processing. Given everything you've just relayed, I presume the waxes that you sent off to, to Techform were, were the purple resin? Yes. Yes, they were the purple castable resin. I did not, I have not cast a single piece of the blue wax that I've been using this castable 40. I have not cast, even bothered casting a single part out of it because it literally none of it is usable at this point. So I'm experimenting a little bit to see about maybe increasing the model size a bit to to compensate for the shrinkage. But you do end up with uneven shrinkage. Mm-hmm. So you get very similar shrinkage in X and Y, but you get a very different percentage of shrinkage in, in Z. I have to figure out, is it worth it for me to play around with it? Or do I leave it for things like, let's say, maybe cufflinks, where having 10% shrinkage, you know, I can say, all right, fine, increase the volume of the model by exactly 10% in all directions. And now, okay, it's not exactly the size that it, that I wanted it to be, but it's close enough and it's a cufflink and its dimensions are not critical to the function of the part. Something like a pen barrel, for instance, I can't deal with that kind of shrinkage. That's just unacceptable to me. So I, I have to decide whether I'm going to go down this road or not and use their resins for that. One of the disadvantages of the Formlabs printers is the inability to easily use resins from other companies other than Formlabs. There's an Italian firm who make a castable resin, which is very well thought of in the industry. And there's also a way of creating a, of sort of hacking the old print cartridges from a Formlabs printer in order to take third-party resins. And I may experiment with doing that as well. Part of the problem with all this, though, is that, you know, we're talking about the expense of lubricants earlier, which are, are ridiculous. These resins are not cheap either. Buying a liter of this blue castable resin from Formlabs, you're looking at $250 American for this one liter container of resin. And so when it doesn't work and you were expecting to be able to get dozens, if not hundreds of parts out of it, it's a little bit frustrating and it's a, it's a lot of money to spend on on a material which again is this is just an intermediary material that you're burning out it's not as if this is being used in the final product right so i'll have to see how much experimentation i'm going to do with it and how much i'm going to play around with trying to maybe hack this printer to be able to handle third party resins there are other printers out there that are becoming higher resolution than this so elegoo and anycubic have both released printers with 4K displays in them for increasing the XY resolution of their parts. And they're significantly less expensive than the Formlabs. And in fact, you can I can buy one of those printers for the cost of buying a couple liters of resin. And so it may be worthwhile for some of the experimentation with third-party resins. Maybe I'll just buy one of these less expensive high-resolution printers try experimenting a little bit with that as well and see what what ends up working out best. Well, if you end up pursuing the cast stainless steel route with Techform, perhaps you could start salvaging those centerpieces by having the precast bit of of the H as a ready-to-go cufflink end. (laughs) I'm not sure they'd be particularly attractive cufflinks. I don't think they're... (laughs) 
that would work out very well. And maybe I can use them for something else. I don't know. Maybe I can I can forge that stainless steel into something else and and turn it into something more more useful. I, it's not any more work for the the form labs to to put some sort of motif or, or decorative pattern, pattern, decorative pattern on on that. So then at least the the three sixteen L that's being cast there with with the middle bit. Every other watch gets a matching set of cufflinks. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at offhours. John can be found on Twitter at underthelop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.